Good morning, everybody. Great to be with you on this blustery, wet morning in San Diego. Glad you all made it here safely today. <laughs> uh, it is uh, great uh, to be with you, as I said. And uh, this, we're in the middle of a series called Myths About God and Faith. And uh, one of the things I really have enjoyed about this series is some of the conversations I've been able to have with, with many of you about either this series and how you're processing it and maybe it's strengthening your faith, but also how it's really addressing a lot of the same conversations you're having with friends and coworkers and some family members about just even understanding our God more. Now, our heart and our desire in this is that we may understand, and, and the more we can understand who our God is and the promises he has for us, that that strengthens our faith and gives us confidence and hope to be the people of God that he's called us to be. And we exist here at Seacoast to help people discover life in Jesus and to learn to follow him. Our desire is that we all are in this lifelong process of learning what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And it's not a more and more law in our lives and more rules to follow, but people who are transformed by who Jesus is in us. And we believe the more we understand excuse me, understand him and his promises, uh, the more that that truth can be made known in us. Now, we also really want this truth. We want to be a people who understand that we're on mission with God to bring the good news to the world in which we live. And we want our friends and our family and our coworkers to understand that there is hope in Jesus Christ. And because there's a lot of messages we get in our world that is not giving us messages of hope. They're not giving us messages of freedom and of peace, and that comes from knowing Christ. And there's, if there's ever a time, at least in my lifetime, where the world needs to see Jesus on display and being made known, it is now. And that's what we want to be about at Seacoast. We want your friends, coworkers, neighbors, and family to know Jesus. We want you to know him. So this series is a part of that, and that's why I've really enjoyed processing with it. Now, the myth we're looking at today, uh, and just by a reminder, or if you've missed some of these, um, we're talking about myths or commonly held beliefs that people have. Some are, are beliefs people have in the church, and some are outside, and there's always a mix every Sunday morning. And we want to address why we believe the alternative to these myths. So the one we're looking at today is a myth that says, being good is good enough, or being a good person is good enough. It, there's this belief out there that, and if you talk, and I talk with a lot of friends and people who say, well, I'm basically a good person. I don't really need God. Or I'm basically a good person. I'm sure I'm going to heaven if there is one. I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm better than most others. So, you know, my life's okay. And so there's this myth out there that being good is the goal of life. And as long as you're good, that's good enough. Another way to think of it is this, is humans are basically good. So just try to do what's right, and you'll be right with God. So just do your best to do what's right, and you will be right with God. This is a belief that's out there. Uh, in fact, just this week, I, in researching this, I, I went online and I found a test. I was asking the question, how do you know if you're a good person? And, and you can take a test online. There's all kinds of great tests. So I took a 10-question test to find out if I was a good person or not. And, and so I answered it, and, and I went into it like, I'm going to be as honest as possible. Even the questions where I saw, and I went, oh, I know how they want me to answer, but that's not my answer. So I said, I'm going to answer honestly. I'll just see if I'm a good person. And it turns out, I got my test results back right away, and it turns out, it said, you are an okay person. <laughs> <laughs> I could be better, 
There's some who are worse, but I'm just okay. And I thought, I was like, are you serious? I'm just okay? I feel like a pretty good person. And so I started reading through the comments, and I found all these people saying, it says I'm a good person, yay. And, and, and as I'm reading what they were saying, all these comments, immediately I'm starting to look at it like, man, these people, they have terrible spelling. Look at their grammar. And I started like becoming all this critical, like, well, these are a bunch of dumb people taking this test. What's wrong with our society? And I realized... Oh yeah, I am just okay. <laughs> so when we think of this and we think of what does it mean to be a good person and, and does that really make us right in the eyes of God? Is that what God wants from us? And is that good enough? We want to address that today because we believe the truth is this. We believe that humans are created in the image of God, but we all fall short and we're all in need of a Savior. Another way to think of that is no amount of goodness will make up for the fallen state or how we've fallen short. We need a solution that's found somewhere else other than in ourselves. Some, some solution that's bigger than our ability to be good because even if you are good, maybe the test shows you're just okay. So we want to look at that today. So pray with me as we jump in. God, we thank you so much uh, for this morning. I thank you that uh, you bring us together to encourage one another, to, to worship you, to hear from you. Lord, uh, for some, maybe it's the first time they've heard about you. Today, would you speak to our hearts? Wherever we're at, Lord, we want this to be about you. So would you change and transform us today? We give you this time in your name. Amen. So before we really jump into why we believe the alternative to this myth, what I want to start off with is just talking a little bit about the problem with the way of thinking that says that as long as we're good, that's good enough. Because there's some logical issues and problems with that. Now, first of all, of course, it is not bad to be a, quote, good person. In fact, I would argue that Christians should be known as the goodest people in the world. We should be the ones that when they say, well, that's a good person... They must be a Christian the way they act by the definitions of the world. We should be called to a higher standard. We should be people who people can look to you and say, well, there's something about them that is good. So there's nothing wrong with wanting to do what's right, but there is something wrong with this thinking that says we can be good enough to somehow be good or right in the eyes of God. Now, here's a th few things that are problems with it. The first is this, is it's the comparisons. If we're using a standard of being good to be good in the eyes of God or right in the eyes of God, it's all based on comparisons. It's based on where you stand in comparison to someone else. It's really hard for us to know what is the measurement. Is, is this on a scale between like Hitler and Mother Teresa? And the goal in life is to be as far away from Hitler as possible and as close to my, is that is that the standard? And, and the only way we would know is by comparing our works compared to others. And we're really good at judging one another and comparing, are we not? So the standard, so the problem with this is the comparisons. It only puts you up against other people. There's a psychologist and author in Southern California named Dr. Paul DePompo. And he says this, when we're thinking about our lives and thinking we're either a good person or a bad person in comparison to others, he said that these trigger problems when you eventually either do a bad thing uh, which we're all capable of, or you may get an inflated self-image when you do many good things. So one of the issues with this, this standard of being a good person is it can either make us feel self-important 
Or it can be so disheartening when you fail and look at others and say, well, I'm not as good as, I, can't, I just can't be like them. I just can never measure up. And is that the, the pattern that God would want us to somehow have our whole eternity depending on that? So one of the issues is a comparison. The other one is this, the standards. The, the problem with this logical thinking is the standards. How do we know where we currently stand? What is the standard of measurement? And where do you, measure, where do you stand on that? How do we know? The University of London did a, a survey or they did a research on this issue of being good people. And they uh, researched a, bunch, a thousand people and said, okay, let's really study how people think of themselves. Or are they good people or not? And it turns out that 98% of people consider themselves to be at least in the top half of good people in the world. That means basically everyone, when asked, would say, I'm at least better than half the population. So if we're using, you know, this logic of just be good enough to be good in the eyes of, the, of, of God, all but 2% think that they measure up, that they're at least in the top half. So again, there's, there's a logical breakdown with that because I, my guess is in this room, you would say, well, yeah, I'm in the top half, but I can find, you know, at least 20% of other people that I know that aren't. So, you know, we, we find, so 98% of us think we're good people compared to everyone else. Again, there's no real standard. Uh, psychologists call this, uh, when we look at ourselves and rate ourselves, it's called the fundamental attribute error. And the idea of the fundamental attribute error is when we judge ourselves, we take, into con- we take the context into consideration. In other words, if I tell you a lie, I'm not a liar. You just, in that case, I had to tell a lie. Because, you know, if you really understood, you would know I'm not really a bad person, I'm not a liar, but I lied because it was to protect someone or they weren't ready to hear the truth. Um, maybe I stole something and you say, oh, you're a thief. Well, no, I'm not a thief because if you understood the context, it was just one little thing. It wasn't a big deal. These corporations steal all the time. So, you know, we, we tend to put context. So psychologists say it's a fundamental attribute error. When judging ourselves, it's our best intentions and we take into context. But when we judge others, it's only on their behavior. If you stole something, you're a thief. Because that's who you are. That's the attributes of your character. So when we have this standard, when we're, it's hard if we're saying what's good enough, we're always going to think we're good enough. Because we take into the whole context. Again, we use our imperfect knowledge to make judgments. The other problem with this line of thinking, other than standards, what's the standard, and the comparisons, is time. It's time. How do you know you have enough time to make up for all the bad things you've done? What if you have been a, quote, bad person your entire life, and today you say, from now on, I'm going to be good? What, how do you know when you've made up for all that bad? How do you know if you've somehow crossed that line from bad person to good person, and God's just waiting like two more things, do two more good things, and you're there? See, there's, there's a breakdown in this logic. And would it be unfair of God to have this system? See, some people think this system is actually very fair, but it's completely unfair. There is no standard. There is no idea of when you got there. And so there's so many of our religions and philosophies in the world that do use a system of just make sure your bad outweighs, I mean, sorry, you're good. (laughs) Okay, 
I guess there's probably some that think that way too, but your good outweighs your bad. As long as you tip the scale that much, you're probably good to go. And when you get there, who knows? Who knows when you got there? So this line of thinking of being good is good enough has its shortcomings. And I would argue it's completely unfair compared to what we learn in Scripture. So what I want to do today is look into why do we believe what we believe? Why is it that we believe the alternate view? That we're creating the image of God, which is a good thing. We're made for relationship with God, but that's broken. We're fallen people, and we're in need of a Savior. We're in need of a real solution, not our own goodness. So I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of John chapter 3. I want to look at a story here today where Jesus is addressing a very good person, somebody who would probably measure up on most of the tests. So in John chapter 3, the very beginning of it, and in the book of John, if you're new with scripture, is kind of two-thirds of the way through in what we call one of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're stories of the life of Jesus. This one's written according to the disciple John, and he writes this in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees, his name was Nicodemus, who was a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do the miracles and signs that you do unless God is with him. So right there, the context of this story is you have a guy named Nicodemus who's a Pharisee. Pharisees were known to follow the laws of God to perfection. Their goal in life was to follow the law so perfectly that nothing could be uh, said about them that was wrong. I lived in Israel and Jerusalem for a year, and we uh, spent a lot of time uh, with Orthodox Jews who still to this day would be what I would consider modern-day Pharisees who are trying so hard to be good, to, do, to follow all the laws of God, which now they have thousands of laws to explain the laws of God. Laws to follow laws, so that you can make sure you were good. Nicodemus had laws to follow laws. He was trying to be good. And apparently, he and his Pharisee friends are studying and discussing Jesus, and they're saying, could this person be the Messiah? And Nicodemus actually here affirms that. He says, look, we know you're from God. We look at this, the teachings you have, we look at the miracles that we see in you, and we know that you, you have to be from God because no one could do this unless it, this person is from God. In other words, I'm affirming the rumors that you are the Messiah, the one who's coming to bring us hope and new life. I'm affirming that about you, Jesus. You, got, you must be that one. And he comes to him at night, by the way, which is also something else in the story where he doesn't want to be found out. He's afraid of what this means. But he's coming to you. Now, so he affirms who Jesus is. But now look at what Jesus says right after that. Jesus says to him in verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, isn't that a bizarre response to someone coming and saying, Jesus, we've been talking about you. We're thinking about you. It seems that you're the Messiah. It seems that no one could do what you're doing unless they're from God. And Jesus says, well, you can't go to the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. There seem to be two completely disconnected statements. But what's happening here is Jesus is actually answering the question that he has not yet asked. 
Because what Nicodemus is really doing is he's coming to Jesus and he's saying, okay, I'm from a group of people who are trying to do what's right. We're trying to be good people. We want to be known. We want to be right in the eyes of God. And he's saying, I'm hearing your teaching, Jesus. I think you're the Messiah. But under all of this is what Nicodemus is dying to know is, Jesus, are we on the right track? Are we doing the right things? Are there any laws that we're missing? Are there any rules that we're overlooking? Where do we stand? If you're from God, we want to know the truth. Are we on track? So Jesus skips all the small talk, unless there was small talk or other questions that John just doesn't record, but Jesus gets right to the heart of it and says, what you're really talking about, Nicodemus, is you're saying, hey, are my actions making me right in the eyes of God? Are we doing the right things? Are we good people? And Jesus says, the wrong, you're going the wrong about this the wrong way. Because unless you're born again, Unless there's something else that happens, you won't see the kingdom of God. You won't enter heaven. Your good works are not on the right path. Nicodemus says, well, then how can someone be born again? Jesus says, unless you, I say to you in verse 5, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So he gives a little more explanation. What is this idea, water and the spirit? Jesus here is referring, I believe, to Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 and through 27. It says this. I want you to hear it. This is from the Hebrew scriptures that Nicodemus would be well aware of. God is speaking to the nation of Israel and says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And this is is symbolic of being purified, of, of cleansing your lives, cleansing you from sin. And you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your sins and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my Holy Spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. What Jesus is really addressing here is the the problem, the need. He's saying the need isn't that you somehow have more laws and do enough good things. The need is you need spiritual new life, that you are dead spiritually. That no amount of behavior is ever going to make up for the separation that you have between you and God. And and the need that you have is you need a spiritual rebirth, Nicodemus. The idea of being born again, which now it's unfortunate in America today because the term born again has a lot of connotations when you say it out there. I don't recommend you start there with people that you want to share your faith with and say, oh, you should be born again. It brings up a whole lot of political notions and things. But what Jesus is saying is you need spiritual rebirth. You don't need more law. You don't need more actions. You need your heart to be rejuvenated and changed. So Jesus is jumping right to the need. In Romans chapter uh, 6, verse 23, Paul later articulates it this way, saying, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have that on the screen for you. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's really what Jesus is saying. Nicodemus, thank you for doing the good things. Thank you for trying to follow the law. Thank you for trying to do what's right. But the truth is, we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We're all in need of spiritual rebirth. 
We live in a world where people want to believe that mankind is inherently good. And I believe that people have the capacity to do good things. I think bad people can do good things. I think, you know, I've been places in the world where I've been in need or something, you know, a car broke down and people would jump in to help you. People, in general, there's often good things that come out of people. Now, that doesn't make us good in the eyes of God, but we have this need, you know, there, there is this desire to help one another among a lot of mankind. But we live in a world where we want to believe that we are some sort of elevated beings and we're always good. It's very common. And people kind of cringe at the idea that we're all sinners. I love how G.K. Chesterton said it in the early 1900s. He was speaking about this. And he's speaking about what we call, this is the doctrine of sin or original sin, saying we've all sinned. And people were criticizing in the early 1900s the idea that we're all sinners. And maybe the, ch- the church isn't right to believe that. And Chesterton said this over 100 years ago. When the world goes wrong, it proves rather that the church is right. The church is justified not because her children do not sin, but because they do. In other words, the fact that we look around and see failures among Christians, we see failures in the world, we see hate and pain and destruction, only confirms and affirms what we believe, that we all have sinned and we fall short. So Jesus is addressing the problem to Nicodemus. It's not found in the law. It's found in your heart that needs to be rejuvenated. Okay, back to John chapter 3 now. Jump all the way down to verse 9. Nicodemus says to Jesus, he says, How can these things be? How can we have new life? How can I be made whole? How, can, what, what is, how does this work? And he starts off and he gives them some questions, kind of like, how do you not understand? You're supposed to be a teacher of Israel. You should know these things. But he goes on. Let's look all the way down to verse 14. A very bizarre verse. This is one of those strange verses in the Bible. Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Anybody new to scripture? You like that one? (laughs) This is a bizarre statement. What Jesus is alluding to is a strange story in Numbers chapter 21. There's a strange story where there's these snakes in the wilderness that the people of God, they said that the nation of Israel was rebelling against God, and so God allowed these venomous snakes to bite people, and they were dying from it. And in the ancient world, anytime stuff like that happened, they say this is a curse sent by God. That's how they processed it. So, In the story in Numbers chapter 21, track with me if you've never heard this before. It's one of those strange stories in scripture. Moses makes an image of the snake out of bronze, a bronze image of the snake, and he lifts it up on the pole and says, and God told him to do this and said, if you look at this snake, you'll be healed from the snake bites. Now, you might say, okay, what in the world do you really believe? Now, this is a, a, a really strange story in Scripture that proved to be a foreshadow. Now, in the ancient world, they'd say, oh, this idol healed them. But really what it was, was God was saying, I'm taking this curse that was sent to you, these venomous snakes, and I'm going to lift this curse up, and I'm going to test, will you believe in me enough that you're looking upon a snake is not going to heal you? But I'm asking you, would you be, change your hearts and start having faith in the power of who I am? That was what he was telling to the Israelites. I'm going to ask you to do something really strange. Look at this image of the curse and you will be healed. Now, in and of itself in the ancient world, it's kind of a story that they would say, okay, great. 
Because the ancient world has all kinds of bizarre stories like that. But what's interesting is Jesus uses this story and says, this was a foreshadow of what's happening with me. Just as Moses had to lift up a snake in the wilderness to save you, just as a curse was lifted up, so I too, the Son of Man, am going to take the curse of all humanity, your sin that separates you from God, and I will be lifted up. Nicodemus, by the way, was probably one of the Pharisees who was there when Jesus was crucified and when they lifted him up on the cross. And Jesus says in verse 15, if you look upon me, you will be saved. And this leads to the most famous Bible verse probably in the, in the world, which is John three sixteen. Very next thing he says to Nicodemus, for God so loves the world that he gave his only son and whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Nicodemus, here's the solution. It's not, have I done enough good things? But it's, will you believe in me, the Son of God, who will be lifted up, who's going to take the curse of your separation from God upon myself and be lifted up for you and for me, for all humanity? And look upon Jesus and you'll be saved. It's interesting that Jesus didn't say, yes, and then follow the Ten Commandments. And then be a good person. No, he said, believe in me and look upon me. In Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, it says this, We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Jesus as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness or the right relationship with God. Because in his restraint, God passed over our sins that were previously committed. So again, it's, it's Jesus that makes us right in the eyes of God. He, it's not our works. It's not our goodness. See, Christianity is giving the only real solution to the problem. And in this solution, there's actual assurance. The solution that God gives us sets us free from wondering if we are good enough. It sets us free from the question that Nicodemus had. Am I doing the right things? It sets us free from saying, am I at least better than Matt? Am I at least better than this person? Where am I on the scale? The only true assurance we can have in life is to look to Jesus and trust that he is enough. Andy Stanley says it this way, good people do not go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. If we look at our goodness, we'll never have assurance. But when we look at Jesus, we have full assurance. Eternal life is not a reward given to good people. It is God's gift given to forgiven people. See, the hope that we have is in the forgiveness of Jesus that is freely given. It's not in ourselves. So the question for us, if we believe that, then what does that mean? How should we respond? Because really that comes down to the question now, what, what is the response for us today? Now many of you in here today have already believed in Jesus. You believe that what he did on the cross is enough to save you from your sins. And that is what I would say is the first step. If you do not yet believe that, you've never taken that step of believing and saying, Jesus, I'm going to trust that you're enough. This morning we want to encourage you to do that. The very first response we need to have here is to look to Jesus. To let Jesus be enough for us. Now, say, okay, I've already done that. Do we do that in our everyday life as Christians? In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, it, says, it actually says, Look unto me, and you will be saved. 
There is no other God like me. Our, our whole lives, we want to be people who are trained to look to Jesus. Now, let me ask you this. Let, let's say, for example, you're involved in a life group here. And in your life group, maybe you're sharing some of your struggles. You're going through something. I don't know what it is. Let's, let's take something like you're going through a job change. And, and you're thinking, I don't know what to do about this. We're going through a job change. And, and, and you, you know, there might be there's some financial questions. There's questions about what this is. How, does, how do you teach and speak to one another as a life group? Do you say, oh, well, you know, and start giving all this practical advice? Do you maybe jump in with all, and which is okay, man-made wisdom's okay, but is our, our first inclination is usually to jump in and offer solutions or rules or, or law to one another, or do, are we trained to teach each other? What is, look, let's look to Jesus. What is God teaching you in this moment? What can we learn about Jesus? How is, why are you stepping, why do you think you're going through this? What is it that you can learn? Can you learn more about trusting him? Can you learn more about contentment through this? Is maybe Jesus setting you free from the need to have all kinds of stuff? And he's giving you the ability now to find freedom in him because you're going to have less money. And so you don't need some of the stuff that you've acquired. And, and our, we naturally go to law rather than to go to Jesus. And he's saying here, our first response needs to be, let's look to Jesus. There's a story about uh, Charles Spurgeon, who he's a... a pastor and teacher, author from the 1800s. And he talked about his conversion experience in, when he was 16 years old. And it was a snowy day in England, and he was walking on the streets, and he wandered into a church. And he wandered into a church, and, and there was no, uh, it was snowed so much, not even the pastor showed up that day. So he said there was a shoemaker who stood up to teach that day. And he jumped up, and he, he stuck to the text and he said, and the text was Isaiah 45, 22. It says, look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. That shoemaker went on and shared this story in the words of Spurgeon. He said, my dear friends, this is very simple text indeed. It says, look, now look and don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But this text says, look unto me. Many of you are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. He looks, he goes on and he describes, he says, Jesus is saying to you, look unto me, I'm sweating drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and buried. Look under me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. Have we trained ourselves to look unto Jesus, to find what we need in him? Or do we find it in our goodness? Do we find it in our works? Look to Jesus in those moments. Ask, what do we know about the good news in each situation we're going through? The next thing is this. Allow the goodness of God to be on display in your lives. So there is, not only do we look for good deeds, but we also want to be an example of goodness. Christians should be good, as I said in the beginning. And we've said it before, I love the quote from Martin Luther, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. 
So first we want to look unto Jesus, but then second, we want the goodness of God to be on display in our lives. We want that goodness to be on display in our lives. A few weeks ago, I was uh, driving home after Sunday morning, and someone was um, going down Encinitas Boulevard, and the back of their truck was filled with a pallet of bottles of water. And they turned the corner onto Camino Real, and all the, pa- the pallet tipped over, and the entire intersection was filled with literally thousands of bottles of water. And I was going home, and I saw that, and I thought, that sucks for them. <laughs> and I was at a red light, and I saw the guy jump out, and he was an older guy, and he started like picking up some of the cases that were still intact, and cars were driving by, splattering water everywhere. And I was just like, man, that is a mess. I'm hungry. <laughs> And then I thought, I really need a sermon illustration in a few weeks. So I pulled over, and uh, <laughs> I had a bunch of kids with me, and I said, let's jump out, let's help. And we got in the street, and we just started taking all these bottles of water and helped them. And, and uh, one other person helped. <laughs> and uh, as hundreds drove by, saying, sucks for them. <laughs> and I just thought, you know, there was no preaching moment. There was no moment where I, you know, said, like, hey, you know, this is Jesus on display in me. Here you go. You ready to pray? <laughs> it was just, you know what, God, if Christians can't be the ones to lean in and to put Jesus on display to be inconvenienced, then who can? Who should? So there are times when he asks us, man, what, yeah, what would Jesus do in this moment? Probably pull over or just go, mm, move them with his hands. I don't know. <laughs> so, Let's look to Jesus. Let's allow the goodness of God to be on display in us. And finally, let's be unquestionable symbols of God's hope in this world. Let's make no mistake to be symbols of hope in this world. One author writes this way, hope is the birthplace of Christian self-sacrificing love. That's because we can just let God take care of us. We're not preoccupied with having to work to take care of ourselves. We can say, Lord, I just want to be there for other people tomorrow because you've been there for me today. And if we don't have the hope that Christ is for us, then we will be engaged in self-preservation and self-enhancement. But when we let ourselves being taken care of by God for our future, whether in five minutes or five centuries from now, we can be free to love others. Then God's glory will shine more clearly. And that's how it becomes visible. So yes, can Christians be good people? The answer is, I hope so. But our goodness is rooted in the hope we have that Jesus is enough. And this goodness isn't getting us anywhere. It's just putting the glory of God on display. It's bringing hope to a world that right now could really use some could really use thousands and millions of people who show a different way because of who Christ is in us. So as we end our time here today, we're going to end with a very appropriate response, and it's what we here call communion. And this is our time to go to these tables that are around the room and to remember what Christ has done. It's time for us to take a moment and to look upon Jesus.
to look to him and say, we want you to be enough. And Lord, forgive me for looking to myself. Forgive me for comparing myself with everyone else and making sure at least I'm in the top half instead of looking to you. And so in a moment, we have a couple songs to end with, and we're going to invite you to go to the tables, and we have bread on the tables, and the bread represents the body of Christ that was broken and that was lifted up for you and for me. The curse of God that was lifted up, and that if we would just look upon him and believe, then we can be healed and saved. So the bread represents the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And the, the juice that we'll take represents the covenant in, the, in his blood, an agreement he made with us. It's a one-way covenant. He says, I promise that I'm enough for you. I promise that what I'm doing on the cross is enough to save you. I promise that I provide a way for you and your friends and your family to have eternal life in me. And so when we take that cup, remembering the promise God made to us and the blood that he shed to confirm that. So let's pray as we move into that time. Lord God, we thank you so much that, Lord, we live in a broken world. We can all agree with that. But we thank you that in this broken world that you provided a solution and a solution that wasn't found in whether we could keep up the pace. It was a solution that's found in the, the words that you said that it is finished, that you did it all. And so God, today we want to remember that. We want to celebrate that. We want to repent of believing it can be about us when it's really just about you. So, Lord, would you take this time now and would you move in this place? Would you speak to our hearts? And, Lord, if there's anyone here right now who's never taken that first step to trust and to believe that you're enough, would you speak to them right now? And if that is you, in the quietness of your heart, would you pray with me right now? Pray this prayer. If you want to take that first step that you believe that Jesus is enough and receive his forgiveness this morning, pray this with me. Lord Jesus, I ask you to forgive me for my sins. I trust that what you did is enough. I come to you with my questions. I come to you with my doubts. But today I want to make you Lord. Would you change my life? And if you've prayed that prayer with us this morning, that's the first step in a life of being forgiven and discovering life in Jesus. And if that's you, we invite you to take communion with us, with the rest of us today, to celebrate what Jesus has done. So Lord, we give you this time now, in your name, amen. We have a couple songs, so feel free at your own uh, timing to go to the tables when you feel ready. If you want to go with a friend, you want to go alone, you want to get off and pray, however you want to take this, this time is for us to remember what Christ has done.